Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining me on AM Live. Hope your day is going well. So today we are going to be discussing mainly, among other topics, the Michael Sussman verdict. So Michael Sussman is an attorney who worked for the Clinton campaign and the DNC in 2016 when Russiagate began. And he's the first person to be brought to trial by special counsel John Durham, who was investigating the origins of the Russia investigation and particularly looking at if there's any intelligence community misconduct. So Sussman was accused of lying to the FBI and brought to trial. And his trial had just ended in an acquittal. And people who supported the conspiracy theory that Donald Trump was a conspirator and blackmail asset of the Russian government are cheering and claiming that this is some sort of vindication of their many conspiracy theories about a sweeping Trump-Russia plot. But if you look at the details of the case, actually, what came out, irrespective of the verdict, is incredibly damning to the Russiagate narrative, on top of all the other humiliations that Russiagate has endured in the five-plus years that it's been in existence. But there's also another aspect to this, which is that Michael Sussman, although he was guilty, I think, of lying to the FBI, and I think he should have been convicted, the problem with this case was that it was based on a false premise. And it was based on the premise that the FBI was fooled by Michael Sussman. In reality, Michael Sussman and the Clinton campaign were working with the FBI, and the FBI was relying extensively on the fake information that the Clinton campaign concocted. And a case that is premised on this notion that the FBI was duped is going to be flawed because, and Sussman was able to exploit the weaknesses in that case. So let me briefly summarize what the case is, and I'll add a few comments. I'm opening up to calls, and I'm hoping to be joined by a guest, uh, Hans Manke, if I'm pronouncing his his name correctly. He's an attorney, an avid Russiagate debunker. Oh, I see him in the chat, so I'm going to – here, Hans, I'm going to invite you to speak. And I'd I'd love to hear what Hans has to say about this verdict. I'll go first and give my take, and then we'll turn it over to Hans. So – Basically, so Sussman is accused of lying to the FBI in a very narrow charge. And, you know, forgive me for people who know all this, but I just want to catch up anyone who's not familiar with the details. So basically, Sussman, in the fall of 2016, went to the FBI and said, I have information about a possible Trump-Russia covert back channel where we have acquired technical data that was obtained by people who are just out there to protect the Internet, and they happen to come across this really suspicious data between a Trump server and a Russian bank called Alpha Bank. And we think this is possibly evidence of a secret Trump-Russia back channel. And this comes amid a whole flurry of activity from the Clinton campaign with its contractor, Fusion GPS, via the Steele dossier, which they were trying to plant into the media and the FBI as part of their plot to manufacture fake Trump-Russia ties. So what Sussman is accused of, Sussman is not accused of feeding the FBI fake information, which he did. The supposed Trump-Russia back channel via Alpha Bank was a scam, like everything else. But Sussman is not accused of giving the FBI fake information. He's accused in a very narrow charge of lying to the FBI about his motives for coming to them. Because, and this was established with documentary evidence, when Sussman went to the FBI, he said to them, I'm not coming on behalf of any client. I'm just coming here basically as a concerned citizen. And he even wrote that in a text message that he sent to his FBI contact, Jim Baker, before their meeting. So that's an outright lie. 
because we know from the evidence that was produced in this trial that meanwhile, Sussman was plotting with the Clinton campaign behind the scenes about this Alpha Bank scam and was even billing them for his time while he was working on it. So the notion that he was not acting on their behalf was a complete lie. So that's what he was accused of. And the jury found him not guilty. Now, there are many reasons for that. One of them is that, you know, it's quite fair to speculate that this was a partisan jury. It happened in D.C. Overwhelmingly, the odds are you're going to have people with Democratic Party leanings. And I think that's been borne out by what we've heard of the jurors so far. Right. There's also the fact that when uh, Durham prosecuted the case, he couldn't actually use the text message that Sussman sent when he said, I'm not acting on behalf of a client. That actually could not be weighed. It had The case came down to basically what Sussman recalled from the meeting and what the FBI contact he was speaking to, Jim Baker, recalled from their meeting. So it's actually, I think, a, a tough case in that respect, given the, given the ways in which it was allowed to be presented. But there's another major problem with this case, and that is this. Sussman, was, it, Sussman did lie to the FBI. But the notion that that prevented the FBI from doing a proper investigation or that has, that somehow hindered the FBI is a joke because the FBI knew who Sussman was. They worked with him. At the same time as this, they were taking the Steele dossier from Sussman's uh, Clinton campaign and using that for investigative leads and soon uh, surveillance warrants. So the notion that Sussman somehow fooled the FBI into investigating this Alpha Bank thing and they didn't know who he was working for based on what he said. It's just not true. The real scandal here is not that Michael Sussman lied to the FBI. The scandal is that the FBI worked with Michael Sussman, used Michael Sussman's information and the other information provided by the Clinton campaign to investigate Trump's, uh, to, to, to investigate Clinton's opponent, the Trump campaign, and then lied to the public about that and to the FISA court when they went to the FISA court to spy on Trump campaign volunteer, uh, Carter Page, and hid from the FISA court that actually Fusion GPS, the firm that had produced the Steele dossier, which the FBI was basing its warrant application on, was working for the Clinton campaign. So the scandal here is not really Michael Sussman's lie. It's the FBI's lies. Lies to the FISA court concealing that they were working essentially with the Clinton campaign and lies to the public, which you know we, we only found out about this in stages as more and more damning revelations came out. So that to me was the problem with this case, that Durham, the special prosecutor, was trying to essentially blame Sussman only for a scam that the FBI was also involved in. Both Sussman and the FBI were in on the scam. So a case that's predicated on just accusing Sussman of perpetrating the scam is flawed. And, you know, I don't think that's the reason, sole reason why he lost, but it does speak to why this case was challenged. And more broadly, it raises a larger point that unless John Durham is willing to go after intelligence officials who are behind this Russiagate scam, then this investigation of his is going to be a disappointment. Now, a lot of important information has come out, including during the Sussman case. And that's important. And it's good to get that in the public. And possibly Durham knew this was a loser, but maybe bringing this case was a way to put information about the complicity of the FBI and the Clinton campaign and the Russia scam in the public record, that that was reason enough. I have no idea. But certainly that was a result, was that information did get out. But unless he's willing to go after the FBI for essentially working with Sussman, then he's not going to get going to get to the heart of the story. And the reason why it's even more scandalous 
is because the FBI didn't just rely on Sussman and the Clinton campaign for the collusion aspect of its investigation. Recall that collusion was concocted essentially by Christopher Steele or, or whoever wrote that dossier of his. I don't think it was just him. But then the FBI, so, you know, the FBI relied on that for surveillance warrants and for investigative leads. The official stories that the FBI didn't know about the Steele dossier when they opened up the Trump-Russia investigation, I've written about why that's transparently ridiculous. Multiple FBI officials were given the Steele dossier in the month of July. Uh, Victoria Nuland, who's now a key figure in the Biden administration, was then under Obama. She personally authorized an FBI agent to go over to London to meet with Christopher Steele weeks before the FBI officially opened up its investigation. So the idea that the FBI didn't know about Steele and that Steele didn't influence their investigation, that's a joke. And just to underscore that, even before the FBI opened up its investigation, we learned in late 2020 that John Brennan, the head of the CIA, went to Barack Obama, the president, and warned to him that we've picked up word that Russian intelligence is talking about intelligence that they've picked up, that the Clinton campaign is planning a scam in which they're going to tie Trump to Russia. So this was widely known early on inside the intelligence community that the Clinton campaign was doing this. And the notion that the FBI was unaware and opened up its investigation based on some other tip from an Australian diplomat, which is the official story, when, if you look at the tip itself, which I've reported on many have done, is so thin and is not the basis for opening up a historic counterintelligence investigation of a presidential campaign. It just doesn't fly. Okay. So anyway, uh, that, that was a long-winded way of saying that the FBI relied on Fusion GPS via the Clinton campaign for the collusion aspect of the probe. But the FBI also relied, and this is where why it's even worse, the FBI also relied on the Clinton campaign and its agents for the other foundational aspect of Russiagate, which is the Russian hacking allegation. So you have the allegation that Russia conspired with Trump, but you also have the allegation that Russia hacked into the DNC to steal emails, which they then gave to WikiLeaks in order to help Trump win the election as part of their supposed sweeping interference plot. And guess who the FBI relied on for that part of the investigation, the Russian hacking allegation? They relied on a firm called CrowdStrike, which just like Fusion GPS, was hired by Perkins Coy, which is the law firm of Michael Sussman. And when the FBI relied on CrowdStrike, Michael Sussman was the person who controlled the entire chain of information. He redacted reports that CrowdStrike wrote, which which were submitted to the FBI. So Michael Sussman withheld whatever he wanted from the FBI. The FBI never did its own investigation of the DNC server. That was done by CrowdStrike, overseen by Michael Sussman. And FBI officials even complained that the, that the CrowdStrike and Michael Sussman were not letting them get to the information that they needed for months into their investigation, while simultaneously Michael Sussman was pressuring the FBI to go public and endorse CrowdStrike's claims that Russia hacked the DNC, just as Michael Sussman was going to the FBI along with his colleagues to pressure them to start investigating Trump-Russia collusion, such as the Alpha Bank scam. So that is the real scandal here. Not that Michael Sussman lied at the FBI, but that, but that the FBI worked with Michael Sussman, relied on his scam material, and lied to the public about it. And with that, I will turn it over to Hans. I'm very curious to hear what you have to say about the Michael Sussman verdict. And then after that, we'll take some calls. Thanks, Aaron, and thanks for having me on the show. Uh, can you hear me well? Yes, we can. Cool. Um, yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. That was really nicely 
put in kind of, you know, 10 minute summary of the whole thing. Um, maybe I can just jump in and try and unpack a couple of these issues. Uh, let's start with the trial. I mean, <laughs> maybe I should start with sort of the overall conclusion. I think no matter what Durham would have done, it would have always been an acquittal simply because of the DC jury pool. I mean, you had one juror come out yesterday right after the verdict and say, you know, Durham should have never charged this because we have bigger problems in this country than lying to the FBI. <laughs> that's literally what the juror said. So that, that's, that's what's called jury nullification. They just didn't want to know. They didn't care, uh, at least that person. And um, it just seems like there were 12 of them in the room. And, you know, as you mentioned, uh, Washington is uh, 20 to 1 uh, Democrats. So um, you're going to have a hard time finding, uh, you know, a, a balanced jury. It's just not going to happen. Um, which I don't want to kind of digress too far, but that kind of throws up questions of, you know, do we want to maintain that system or would it be better to kind of uh, randomly farm out these cases across the country? Because after all, they're federal uh, cases. The, the, the crime is against the United States. It's, you know, normally if you do something, uh, commit a crime in a town or whatever, then the people of that town will be on your jury. But here we're talking about the whole country. But why is it just a, a pool of 400,000 people in D.C. who get to decide these things? But I'll, I'll stop digressing on that point. So that's just kind of maybe a, a wider point here. So coming back to Durham, I mean, yeah, I, I, he could have done anything. And I don't think he would have gotten a conviction no matter what because of, you know, what I just said. But um, if... Uh, if he could go back, I'm sure he would sort of do things very differently. I mean, he committed a huge strategic blunder, which you already alluded to. Uh, right from uh, off off the bat, he said that, or you know, he, he actually never said anything. He was just sitting in the background. But um, one of his lawyers uh, in the in the opening statement, basically, as you said, said that the the FBI was duped. You know, our poor FBI, and of course, that's not true, as you explained. And um, so, strategically, as a narrative, that's very very bad. Because the jury figured that out within, you know, a few hours that 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 did not happen. And then immediately you're on the back foot. So, you know, as lawyers, you always want to kind of insulate yourself against the bad news right off the bat. And so you go in and say, uh, we're, we're in a situation here where both sides are bad. Sussman lied. The FBI is also bad. They also lied. They also did bad things. So everyone's bad. That's much better as a starting point. And he obviously didn't do that. And Sussman's team completely picked him apart on that. Um, they went in and totally annihilated the FBI. I mean, we found out so much stuff these past two weeks of, of FBI abuses. In a way, it was great, but, uh, you know, it was very weird the way that, that we had to find out about these things. Uh, he also, there was also a bunch of tactical errors, like the, the sequence of witnesses was completely off. Um, and I understand that uh, none of the people that uh, were representing Durham's team actually practice in that particular court. And, uh, you know, that that's also a very bad idea. And I don't know what their experience is at, at these kinds of trials and whether they thought it through and whatever. Uh, I did not get the idea that they did. Um, they were kind of all over the map. Now, just right at the end, they, they I think that's when they figured out how to do this. They, they backed off of uh, Clinton. They backed off of FBI and all that kind of stuff. And, and in the closing statement, they framed it as a collusion issue between Sussman and this other guy called Rodney Joffe, whom we haven't talked about yet. And that's probably also closest to the truth as to what happened here. Rodney Joffe is this tech executive who was uh, promised by his own telling, this is not like not, not someone else saying it. So by his own telling, he was promised or uh, what was the word he used? Uh, prospectively promised or something to that effect, uh, a top job in Hillary's administration if she won. So that gives you some 
a possible motivation there for what he did, for why he did what he did. And um, what he did is he assembled that data and he used his IT people uh, in Georgia Tech and elsewhere to kind of assemble that data. And then that data was given to Sussman and Sussman gave it to the FBI on, on and on that occasion he lied. And, you know, then the whole thing took off from there. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Joffe, the jury had, you know, they heard about him. They did not hear from him because he pleaded the fifth. Unfortunately, the court system does not work in a way where you can call him and he sits there in front of the 12 jurors and said, you know, I plead the fifth, I plead the fifth, which would have been really bad for Sussman, but that doesn't happen. Because he kind of pre-pled the fifth, they, they never called him. So the jury never got to see that. They never got to hear about that. They did hear his name, and they probably didn't get a very good impression of him. So anyway, in closing statements, uh, Durham's team decided, okay, we're going to go all in here on Sussman and Joffe. They're the collaborators. They did all the bad stuff. I thought it was much better at the end than at the beginning, but the damage was done. And as I said already, even if they had done everything perfectly, I think this jury <laughs> would have acquitted anyway. So I think um, moving on from there. So that's the case. You know, it's done. Um, the the bigger picture, as you as you said, is uh, FBI. I mean, what we found out these we already knew about all the things you said that all bad things they did and how they uh, you know it did it did not start on uh, July thirty first uh, when they got that tip from the Australian diplomat. Crossfire Hurricane didn't start then. It started earlier. Steele was already passing his reports to his. Uh, uh, FBI handler a month before that, and there was all kinds of other interactions. You know, you already mentioned that. I'm not going to rehash that. But um, what we found out on top of the stuff we knew is is pretty shocking, and it came again through Sussman's team. Um, Durham had to disclose all these things as part of discovery, and then Sussman's team kind of just dumped all these things <laughs> into the court record. So, you know, we found out um, a lot about... Um, Andy McCabe, for instance, the former deputy director, um, he lied over and over about Crossfire Hurricane. He lied to the DOJ repeatedly and in a really bad way. And um, that we didn't know, and we didn't know it with such specificity. We knew he lied about Hillary's investigation. He was in trouble for that. Um, people will remember a couple of years back, but DOJ did not prosecute. Anyway, now we know he also lied with uh, in, in respect of the Crossfire Hurricane in a very, very bad way. So, Aaron, I know this one issue that you uh, you flagged up so many times, which is um, the investigation uh, through Fusion GPS, these these Clinton operatives who, you know, these, these smear merchants, um, the ones who hired Christopher Steele. Uh, one of the media narratives on this is that, oh, Fusion was hired by the GOP or the GOP candidates. So it was really a Republican operation, whatever. And, you know, and, and that then morphs into Steele was hired. And, of course, that's not true. Uh, Steele had nothing to do with the GOP, with the Republicans, nothing. He came much later. And I know, Aaron, you've, you've, you, know, you, you, you point this out whenever you can, because, you know, this is a lie that's just been perpetuated for very long. Anyway, guess what? Uh, McCabe told the same lie to his uh, DOJ supervisors. Um, he said that the, uh, the, so the source for the dossier was based in Russia, uh, which is the same lie that the FBI told uh, the FISA court. Uh, he wasn't based. He'd been in Washington, D.C. for 20 years. He was working for the Brookings Institution. He was right around the corner. He, he, he wasn't in Russia. So, um, you know, many, many more. I don't want to you know, bore people with all these different lies. But so, for instance, we found out in, with great specificity documented in, you know, real <laughs> written documents, both handwritten and, and sort of typed up reports, typed up briefing notes and so on about all these things. And, and you know, the list goes on. So uh, in a way, 
we can be very grateful to uh, Sussman's team for dumping all that information. So I'm, I'm just working my way through it. Uh, and I'm, I probably looked at 10% so far. Uh, a guy from Epic Times called uh, Ivan Penchikov, he very uh, <coughs> happily, you know, gladly, he went to the court and, and got all these documents. So, and he uploaded them all publicly. So they're all there. We can all go and have a look. Uh, I retweeted it and, you know, it's, it's out there. So if, if anyone in, is interested, you can have a look. But it's like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of documents. So um, we're working our way through that. Uh, and it's extremely interesting. So we have to thank Sussman's team for that. So now I've heard people say, oh, you know, Durham just went in there because that's what he wanted to achieve. And, you know, he, he wanted he didn't care about losing or winning or whatever. He just wanted to get all these documents out. And this was one way of doing it. Um yeah, I, I don't think so. I don't believe that. Uh, I, I think he messed up. I think he's he's very disappointed that it went the way it did. I don't think he should have brought the case uh, as he brought it. He shouldn't have brought it there. He should have brought it in Virginia where he had a different jury pool. Many, many things we can discuss there. But anyway, bottom line is we get all these documents which show all, uh, the, the FBI's uh, malfeasance. And, you know, maybe that's kind of one a good thing in the long run that we can take from all this. So I'll just, just hand it back to you now. So let me ask you, Hans, from a legal perspective, do you think that there are in the in the criminal code, are there charges that FBI officials like McCabe could face beyond beyond lying, um, beyond perjury? But, you know, the idea of launching a, a probe based on a scam and covering it up, is there is is it criminal there or say there were to be accountability? Would it be criminal or would it just maybe be administrative punishment? Let's say if even John Durham wanted to e- even go there. Sorry, uh, I'm back. Um, it's a really good question. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the simple answer is basically is just always the lying charge, the 1001 that we've all heard about, the one that they got Flynn with, Papadopoulos with, and, you know, various other characters, and, of course, the one that they charged Sussman with as well. You know, it always seems to be that particular charge. Um, and I'll, I'll go to the other point in a moment, but just on that point, on the 1001 charge, I think it's very important to remember that um, when it's very difficult charging an FBI official with on the with lying, and this is why I get one of the reasons why McCabe um, wasn't charged earlier with his lies, of which he admitted, by the way, on the Hillary Clinton investigation. So that these were previous lies, because um, yeah, they can always plead they were dumb. You know, they made mistakes. Uh, you know, oh, I got that wrong. I didn't lie. You know, I just. You know, I went into the meeting and, oh, I, you know, what I just said, for instance, that uh, McCabe lied about um, that Danchenko was based in Russia. Blatant lie, right? He said, oh, I didn't, I was briefed wrongly. No one told me, you know, you can just make it up. And then you have to find someone else and to, who says otherwise. And it just kind of gets messy. Sort of the, the uh, you know, I was duped excuse kind of works quite well for government officials. Now, in terms of the uh, something broader, but, so by the way, the, the 1001 doesn't apply in any case anymore because all these lies are more than five years old, which maybe I should have mentioned that earlier, which is um, kind of not good because uh, all these lies lapsed this, most of them, the ones I talked about earlier, lapsed this year. They lapsed in February, March of this year. Um, and Durham had all these materials and he didn't use it. He didn't charge anyone. And now they come out like two months after the, uh, uh, you can no longer charge the, uh, the lie because we're outside the limitation period. It's just been too long. So, um, you know, people have theories about that too. I, I just, again, I think he just messed up, but it is very unfortunate that, you know, you just, you can't charge them anymore on that. So there is another uh, statute, which is major fraud against the United States. 
now we're getting to what you mentioned, uh, getting, getting to that, uh, you know, that these people basically conspired with the Clinton campaign to, well, defraud the United States uh, in terms of running this, this fake investigation. Um, but any kind of charge like that is, is horrendously difficult to prove. And, you know, the, uh, so first of all, you have a seven-year limitation period. So Durham's still got two years to, to sort that out if, if, if he's given the time, if he's given the resources and so on. But it's so difficult to prove. You, what you really need is you need someone on, on the inside who's going to flip. Otherwise, it just doesn't work. And I don't think Durham has succeeded in flipping, you know, anyone, basically. Uh, maybe one of the ideas of charging Sussman was that he would flip and say, yeah, no, we did have these discussions. And, yeah, you know, I was yeah. – some of these documents show that, you know, he was basically talking to the FBI every other day. You know, so he, he has a lot to tell, but he didn't tell. He didn't flip. And um, the other guy who might have flipped was Kevin Kleinsmith. You remember the lawyer who, who uh, doctored evidence? And Durham charged him two years ago. He totally undercharged him again. Again, I think that was a that was a big mistake. But anyway, um, he didn't flip either. You know, so uh, will this guy Joffe flip? Well, first you got to charge him. Joffe hasn't even been charged yet. So you got to find: is anyone on the Hillary side going to flip? I mean, um, doesn't look like it. They they all seem pretty happy. You had Mark Elias, the campaign lawyer, in court last week. You had the campaign manager Robbie Mook there. You know, none of that. None of those guys seemed like they they would flip. So as just to, to sort of. And sum up, it's just extremely difficult to yeah. prove this kind of fraud if you don't have someone uh, on the inside telling you what really went down. And I don't think Durham has that person. Yeah, and look, I mean, part of the problem is if you compare the Durham staff to the Mueller staff, the Mueller staff was a huge operation. He had something like 18 prosecutors or whatever, and FBI agents, a lot of, a, huge, a way bigger staff. Durham has a much smaller team. I'm not sure why that is. Uh, because the Durham investigation is an actual investigation. It's an investigation into fraud. The Mueller investigation was there to prop up the fraud and make it look credible. But that's how it is. And so Durham is working with a much smaller staff, which I'm sure means it. I mean, whatever prospect, whatever chances he has of actually getting to the truth, I think it makes that that much more difficult given the staffing uh, that he has, because he just can't bring a case this big, I think, with that small a team. I mean, maybe he was worried about leaks and being undermined from within, or uh, maybe they felt as if they made it too big, it would get shut down quicker, and so it was better to fly under the radar. But I, I think just the size of his staff is is an issue. But on the point you made about the exhibits that have come out, I wanted to talk about one thing I thought was really interesting, and it speaks to just again the extensive role and the inappropriate role that Michael Sussman as a lawyer for Hillary Clinton was playing in an investigation by the FBI into Clinton's opponent. And Michael Sussman was played an, an integral role, not just giving the FBI this fake Alpha Bank story for them to chase down, but also you know, uh, managing what they could see in CrowdStrike's forensics of the DNC server, which again is the foundational allegation that Russia hacked the DNC. Clinton's attorney, who has a major stake in that allegation because uh, their camp is accusing Trump of being in cahoots with the government that they're also accusing of hacking their server. So Michael Sussman and the Clinton campaign are not neutral when it comes to the hacking of the DNC. That's like my house being robbed and me saying to the police, I need you to investigate my neighbor, but I'm going to control the entire investigation, including 
what you're allowed to see in my house. It just, you know, that would never happen in a normal criminal investigation, but it basically did here. So Michael Sussman played a huge role in what the FBI could see. He redacted information uh, that CrowdStrike collected. He redacted their reports. Uh, CrowdStrike did not let the FBI examine the DNC servers and only had the FBI rely on their forensics of the servers. And what's come out during the Sussman exhibits is that Michael Sussman was even editing FBI press releases about the hacking of the Democratic Party. So there's an email uh, from an FBI official named James Trainer, who was a top FBI official on cybersecurity issues uh, in this investigation. This is July 29th, 2016. So just a couple of days before the Crossfire Hurricane investigation officially opened. And Trainer sends to Sussman a draft press, uh, press release by the FBI on the hacking of the DCCC which was alleged to have been carried out by Russia. And the first line says this, the FBI is aware of the recent media reporting on a possible cyber intrusion involving the DCC and is working to determine the nature and scope of the matter. And so he, he passes this to Sussman basically for his approval. And Sussman writes back that he, that he doesn't like it because Sussman says uh, that basically in calling this a quote, possible unquote cyber intrusion, uh, that again, quoting Sussman, doing it in that way, quote, undermines what the DCCC said in its statement, or at least calls into question what the DCCC said. So what Sussman is saying there is that basically the FBI's wording, making this qualify that this is a possible cyber intrusion that undermines the DCCC narrative that they were hacked and hacked by Russia. So Sussman gets trainer to change the language to take out the, the qualifier possible. So now it's no longer possible. And that is a way in which Sussman worked to get the FBI on board with his Russian hacking narrative. Just as meanwhile, as we know now from other reporting, and I've, I've written about this, Sussman was pressuring the FBI to publicly endorse CrowdStrike's claim that Russia was hacking the DNC, even though CrowdStrike and, the, and Sussman were not sharing any evidence with the FBI. So this was just as they tried to get the FBI and the media to, uh, you know, look into and parrot allegations of Trump-Russia collusion. They were doing the same thing with allegations of Russian hacking. And that's why, look, I've always said it's possible that Russia really did do it. Maybe there's evidence for it. But when the evidence so far is so heavily tainted by partisan bias, and not just partisan bias, but partisan bias that has already been found to have been uh, guilty of fraud, not guilty in court, but guilty in the, you know, based on facts, given the what we know about the Steele dossier and everything else. It's just, it's not credible. And the evidence that was actually used by the FBI needs to come out. So we need to see the CrowdStrike reports that Michael Sussman redacted. And I've talked about this before. I've tried to get them through FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act. And so far, the FBI has only acknowledged the existence to me of one of the CrowdStrike reports. And did not give me any of it. It was entirely redacted. When I know, first of all, that there are not just one, there's not just, there's not just one CrowdStrike report, there's at least two more, because uh, there's three that are referenced so far in the public domain. So the FBI is not only not releasing the CrowdStrike reports, but is denying even the existence of some of them, which is very interesting. And the idea that they should be intelligence, like intelligence-protected information is that this is some kind of national secret is ridiculous because, again, this was not an intelligence product. This wasn't the CIA or the FBI or the NSA that did the CrowdStrike reports. It's a private company. So why is that now shielded from the 
public, especially given that the allegations contained in it are so massively consequential. And Hans, I'm not sure if you want to add anything to that. Um, I'll turn it over to you, and we can take calls after that if uh, if you have the yeah. time. No, no, that'd be great. Um, and and you know, thanks for bringing up the DNC hack. I, I think in many ways that is the holy grail here because um, once you – we don't know. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, it could have been Russia. It could have been Russian people. It could have been anyone. We just don't know. Um, but once that kind of domino falls, if it does fall, kind of, everything kind of collapses at that point because everything is always being framed in that uh, – in that sort of frame of reference, um, everything to do with Trump and so on, because it, it, the whole accusing Trump started during the Democratic National uh, Convention in July of 2016, and that was a month after this hack. But um, during the convention is when those DNC, the so supposedly hacked DNC emails dropped and kind of things took off from there. And then you had Robbie Moog go on CNN. He kind of kicked the whole thing off and said, yeah, well, you know, the, the, these these were hacked by Russian state actors and they're trying to help Trump. And then it sort of all took off. So if it turns out that it was an inside job or someone else hacked or just a, just an ordinary hacker or whatever, we don't know, uh, everything collapses. On that point, maybe, you know, one last point, very interesting as well, that we found out through these documents that <laughs> Sussman's team very helpfully uh, filed. Um there was a guy, well, we don't have to mention his name. There was a guy at Georgia Tech who uh, worked for Joffe, the guy I mentioned earlier. And he compiled this data about the Alpha Bank uh, communications with Trump, you know, the fake the fake data, the, the one that um, Sussman took to the FBI for which he got into trouble. Um, anyway, the FBI dismissed that data. I'm, I'm not sure we mentioned that yet. Sorry if I'm repeating uh, myself here. But the FBI dismissed that data within a day of Sussman bringing it in. Um, so you had the FBI cyber guy who analyzed it. He, he went to court and he said it was just ridiculous. It was just totally laughable. And um, we even have text messages from this guy on that day, September 20th, 2016, texting his colleagues saying this is a total joke. I mean, he, who would who would have a secret communications channel with uh, Russia in their own name? <laughs> and he also figured out that the uh, this channel, uh, the supposed Trump, it was like mail.trump-email.com or something like that. It's like one of these weird ones. And uh, it had been registered in 2009, and it had no activity whatsoever. And he was able to look that up very quickly. And then just before Sussman came in, there was a flurry of activity with that account, you know, very suspicious. So anyway, he called it, he saw it, he even said that the, whoever compiled this might have a mental disability. You know, he was very, very dismissive of it. Anyway, guess what? This same guy, the one I'm just talking about, he was consulted by the Mueller people about the DNC hack. And there's all kinds of back and forth between the Mueller team and this guy on the DNC hack like a year later. A year after the DNC, after the the FBI basically said this guy is, is, is you know his, his story is ridiculous, so that that's the extent of uh, huh. what you were mentioning earlier, the Sussmans and the DNCs and just all kinds of inter uh, you know overlapping between the uh, FBI and and the Democrats to the point where the same expert, the false expert, whatever whatever you want to call him, who did the Alpha stuff, <laughs> is then the, the the expert on the DNC stuff. So. Yeah. Uh, wow, well, I missed that one. I missed that one. I'll, I'll have to. Uh, 
I'll have to read that. That's I did not know that. That's that's one. It's just one more revelation that raises questions about this foundational allegation, the allegation that triggered RussiaGate and was once treated as this seismic event, this attack on democracy equivalent to Pearl Harbor, which is Russia stealing Democratic Party emails and giving them to WikiLeaks. And by the way, even if the allegation was true, the amount of hype that it generated is just unbelievably out of proportion. If uh, if all the U.S. did, and if all Russia did to other countries was just steal their emails, I think most countries would be thrilled if that's actually all the interference that the U.S. and Russia did to other other countries. But this was turned into this Pearl Harbor style allegation that so that even if it was true, the hype was just unbelievable. And the more evidence that's come out, I can't say it's completely false because we haven't seen all the evidence yet. But so many questions to be raised, including, and I've written about this too, and I, but I haven't mentioned it yet tonight, CrowdStrike, the source of the Russian hacking allegation, the Clinton contractor that first accused Russia of hacking the DNC. What did they say behind closed doors when they were under oath and not putting out leaks to the public? They told the House Intelligence Committee in December of 2017, privately, that actually they had no concrete evidence that these alleged Russian hackers actually t- stole anything from the DNC. And that admission was made under oath by Sean Henry, the CEO of CrowdStrike, who is a former top associate of Robert Mueller when he worked at the FBI. And it was kept under seal for more than two years. And we only learned about that admission that CrowdStrike had no evidence to back up its Russian hacking claims in May of 2020. So more than a year after the Mueller uh, probe ended. And so that's just one more piece of evidence that calls into question this foundational allegation that is at the heart of this entire scandal and that has been so consequential because this claim that Russia hacked the emails that's been used to drum up fear of Russia, it's been used to poison relations with Russia, it's been used to uh, impose sanctions on Russia and kick out Russian diplomats, it's been hugely detrimental to U.S.-Russia relations. It was used to basically prevent Trump from implementing his campaign promise to improve ties with Russia. He was essentially pressured not to go along with any of that, with Russiagate used as the cudgel to get him to make sure that he was in line. So this is majorly consequential. And the fact that there's been so much damning evidence to come out, whether it's Michael Sussman controlling the flow of information that goes from CrowdStrike to the FBI, to the FBI relying on CrowdStrike, to CrowdStrike admitting behind closed doors that it actually has no evidence for it's a Russian hacking allegation. It speaks to the need for accountability. And I don't, I don't even care anymore whether Durham prosecutes people or not. Because I think, as Hans was saying, it's very difficult to prosecute these cases, especially if no one is going to flip. But I do care about information getting out and documents. And so the CrowdStrike reports should be released for the public to see them for ourselves and judge for ourselves whether these were credible. And we should get the full Durham report unredacted. And Durham should look at all these issues. Uh, in full and not pull punches, just as the Mueller probe did an exhaustive probe for more than two years to try to chase down a fictitious Trump-Russia conspiracy fantasy. Um, just a very quick uh, note there, uh, kind of um, just to back up what you were saying that you know Trump had his uh, hands tied from the start, especially in relation to Russia. And that, that might have been part of the whole idea behind this. Um, the day of uh, the day that Russia Gate kind of formally ended. I mean, for some people, it will never end, but you know, in terms of um, probably media interest and so on, was uh, July twenty fourth, twenty nineteen. 
which was the day when Robert Mueller went to Congress and had his doddering kind of performance where he didn't remember anything. And, you know, people were could see that uh, there was nothing there. So that kind of, in a way, ended it. And yet, you know what happened on July 25th, the next day? <laughs> Trump's impeachment phone call. With Lutzke, that's right. That's right. That's right. So the and, what is the, and what is the first topic that Trump raises with Zelensky? It's not investigating or helping with an investigation into Joe Biden, which is what he was impeached for. That comes way down later in the call. Trump's top priority is when he says to Zelensky to help the U.S. looking into CrowdStrike. Because he and, and he's and the transcript is a little unclear, and I'm not sure if that's because Trump was rambling or just it wasn't an accurate transcript. But basically, Trump is suggesting to Zelensky that the DNC hack has actually something to do with Ukraine and CrowdStrike, uh, and that the DNC server was actually hacked from inside of Ukraine. And by the way, there is some evidence pointing in that direction. This was reported in the New York Times that when uh, people from the Democratic Party uh, traced the IP addresses of the hackers, that some of the IP addresses went back to Ukraine, and some of the code that was used in the, ele- in the alleged hack of the DNC was found to have come from Ukrainian hackers, not Russia. And I'm not sure that that means anything at all, and that all that could be spoofed. That could be Russian hackers faking something. But the point is, that's what Trump was asking Zelensky about, for help about. He wanted his cooperation uh, when it comes to uh, an investigation or, or looking into the, the DNC server and specifically the role of CrowdStrike and possibly some Ukrainians. And, you know, I think it's fair to speculate, given all that's happened, that when Trump got impeached, that was an unstated motive, that basically he was being told not to go there. Uh, if there really was indeed something to hide, you know, I could be wrong there, but if there was indeed something to hide when it comes to Ukraine and CrowdStrike, then that could have been a motive to try to impeach him and basically redo the Mueller investigation via impeachment. Right. At the very minimum, we know that the Ukrainians themselves uh, apologized when Trump got elected for kind of interfering in, in, you know, we don't know in what way exactly. We know that the Ukrainian government officials tried to kind of help Hillary, wrote op-eds, that kind of thing. So uh, we don't know. Well, the no, and they also, no, no, they, 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 they interfered in a concrete way and they bragged about this. There's an article in the Financial Times in the summer of 2016 talking about how top Ukrainians are interfering in the election to help Hillary Clinton. And one of the ways in which they did that with a tangible result was leaking this black ledger showing some payments, some alleged payments to Paul Manafort uh, by uh, Ukrainian oligarchs and uh, like, you know, on behalf of uh, Yanukovych, who was the former president of Ukraine, who Manafort was working for. And there were Ukrainians who leaked this. And when this got released in the summer of 2016, that directly caused Manafort's firing. So Ukrainian interference in the election actually was consequential. And, you know, revelations that have come out since then raise serious questions about the authenticity of this of these documents that came up about Manafort. He says that they're frauds. Other people in Ukraine say they were frauds. Some people inside Ukraine were actually found guilty in a court case of interfering in in the US. And you know, I have no idea what the real truth is because Ukraine's messy. It's a very corrupt place. I mean, who knows? But the point is there was tangible interference by Ukrainians in the twenty sixteen election and it was uh, consequential. It got Paul Manafort fired. And there's one more re- interesting tie here with Ukraine and CrowdStrike. CrowdStrike has previously accused Russia of hacking into some Ukrainian military hardware. 
and they they said that Russia they based this on claiming to find malware that they also said they found in the DNC server, which they attribute to Russia. But they were forced to retract that claim that Russia hacked Ukrainian military hardware when it was shown that that was false, and uh, they were forced to retract it. And that was not reported really much in U.S. media, but it was reported. Funnily enough, by Voice of America, U.S. state media. So uh, Ukraine has that other tie where CrowdStrike has made claims before invoking Ukraine and Russia to try to accuse Russia of a hacking that turned out to be false. So, okay, we'll take questions. And Hans, if you have to jump off at any point, um, don't want to keep you. So please join us for as long as you can. And let me ask you quickly just where people can follow your work in case you, you do leave us early. I'll, I'll, I'll stick around. This is fine. Okay. okay, cool. All right. But where, uh, can people, where can people follow you, though? Well, the easiest way is on Twitter, H-A-N-S-M-A-H-N-C-K-E. Okay. Um, I also write from time to time for Epic Times, uh, just written for Federalists. So you'll, you'll see pieces here and there come out. Uh, and uh, right now, as I said, I'm very interested in, in this huge dump that came out of this case uh, that I'm working my way through. It's... Uh, I'm, that, that there's a lot of material there. You know, the, the one we just talked about, the fact that the the same uh, tech guy who was involved with Alpha was later involved with Mueller and, and the DNC hack. So there's a, there's a lot to come. Yeah. Okay, let's take some calls. Sam, you're up. All right, by the way, yeah. Sam, before you go, everyone, uh, because we have limited time, we're going to have to do this pretty speedily. So I'm going to ask everyone to limit their Questions and comments to, you know, be as concise as you can so we can get to everybody. Go ahead, Sam. Um, yeah, just as a quick, if you have some time, you might want to, like, uh, do a, a show. I don't know if you whether it's on your pushback or uh, the Useful Idiots, but you might want to, like, put a timeline because I'm, like, writing all this stuff down. Um, and I look like a crazy person trying to, like, attach times and strings. I'm, it's like, tough. I, it would really help. So, there are so many names and so many dates, and I totally yeah. get it. I totally yeah. get it. It's, um... It's so uh, there's so many details, and that's the problem with this. It's like to explain it to people, it takes it takes a while, and people, especially now, have shorter attention spans. We all do, <laughs> or most of us do at least. Uh, I mean, I'm, and, I'm I'm following it along, but I'm I'm writing like on my Surface Pro, like putting like yeah. lines between it. I'm like, this is this is just yeah. a technology form of like the person with the yarn and the little like pins yes. on the board where I'm at. I will do a pushback show about this. And actually, okay. maybe even maybe even Hans can join me. Uh, we'll talk about that. But anyway, yeah, that's a great suggestion. So thank you. Yeah, uh, just uh, just make some quick points. So, um, I mean, the point you were making about the FBI and the um, going and getting a FISA warrant. I mean, first off, those things get rubber stamped like crazy. But just out of curiosity, I would have to like wonder what would they have told the judge was their evidence. I mean, they can't tell a judge it's a third party source, and that wouldn't fly. But I mean, it, maybe it could in a FISA court. I have no idea. I mean, from what we understand with the FISAs, they just you, you could provide the most minute evidence and they'll they'll give you a, a green light. But um, to your point about the whole FBI thing, I mean, you were saying about why the uh, even if you told I mean, even when we knew that the FBI didn't get the access to the DNC, people didn't really see that as a problem solely because people blamed Comey for Hillary's loss. So they they viewed it as, well, of course, they're not going to give the FBI access to their servers even though it's it's moronic to say like well then what you're relying on somebody giving you certain files that it, it makes no sense no but also but, but also but, but the problem with that is the timeline of that doesn't make sense because 
CrowdStrike was denying FBI access to servers well before Comey made that statement. Comey right, made that. I, yeah, you'll have to. Yeah, I agree with you. That's that's the thing where people just they again, it's a timeline thing. You have to explain to the people like this is before this. This is before that. But now people just view it, even though it came after people still just view the FBI now as a negative thing. That's like, well, maybe they already had such distrust. I mean, the mental gymnastics people do is, is through the roof. But um, it's also to your point about what you were saying is unless you're going to get somebody from the FBI to do a, you know, kind of be the next generation of the Mark Felt to to explain that, you know, to show concrete evidence that the FBI themselves knew or at least had reasonable doubt to, to, to trust this third party source. Uh, you're just not going to get any information on that. And I think to, towards your point as to why the FBI or why they wouldn't show uh, the third parties. I mean, if they're relying on CrowdStrike in this case, how many other third-party companies have been they've been using throughout their throughout the you know not just in this case but throughout the uh, the last like ten fifteen years? So that maybe that's not something they want to share in public. But look, the overall goal. I mean, I think uh, I'll sum it up so other people can go. No matter what, no matter how much information we find, this this in itself accomplished its goal, which is the neocons and the Democrats got united in being more hawkish. And that's that's the ultimate goal is we, we revved up with Russia and I, I would say mission accomplished. It doesn't really matter how we got there. They accomplished their goals, I'd say. You're exactly you're exactly right. And so many liberals were also enlisted in basically adopting a neocon agenda, thinking that being a neocon is synonymous with resisting and standing up for liberal values. That was the beauty of Russiagate. It worked so successfully. And it's, you know, led to major problems in my world of, of the left where, you know, a huge split with people who went along with it and became duped by so much of the propaganda and all the underlying hegemonic neocon belief systems that come with that. So but it's even, a problem. Just, yeah, just the last thing I'd say, even if you had concrete evidence overwhelming to the T, I mean, nothing would happen to any of these people. I mean, look at the Chilcot report that came out in England of the Iraq war. I mean, you had Blair pretty much dead to rights and nothing happens. So just don't expect anything to happen. It'd be great if we're all more informed, but I, I wouldn't hold my breath. Uh, me either. Sam, thanks off the call. On, on the, um, um, the FISA issue, you're absolutely right that um, it is kind of a rubber stamp, but there are, there, for that reason, there are kind of institutional safeguards, and the main safeguard is uh, the gatekeeper. Basically, is the DOJ, and uh, they have to approve it. Um, and I think what we found out, or well, we know what we found out these past two weeks, is that um, the FBI lied to the DOJ over and over, and and really, really badly. I mean, we we gave some examples earlier, and. Um, you know, so, sometimes it's easy to say, you know, they're, they're all bad or whatever, or everyone over there is bad, DOJ, FBI, same thing or whatever. I think one thing that's certainly become clear in my own mind is that um, the FBI was really, really, really bad, especially the leadership. Uh, DOJ, we have to be a bit more selective because they were lied to. And if you're the DOJ and you're told that this guy Danchenko said all these things and that he's in based in Russia, well, you just have to believe it because you don't know, you don't have the details other than what you're told. And of course, those were all lies. So, that could be one reason why these FISAs went through, uh, because the FBI lied to the DOJ. Okay, Tom, go ahead. Hi, how are you doing? Good, good. Um, I, I really enjoyed the Ray McGovern interview the other night, day. Um, 
You don't believe Ray and Bill Binney when they talk about there being concrete evidence that the files were exfiltrated into a thumb drive? You're not convinced uh, listen, of that? I, I think it's completely <laughs> possible what they're saying, uh, and it's bolstered by all the public available evidence to date, especially CrowdStrike admitting that they have no concrete evidence that these Russian hackers that they claim to have found in the server actually took anything. So if you don't have any evidence that they took anything, how can you accuse them of taking the emails? It doesn't make sense. So, and what you could have evidence of, or, or that could mean though, if you don't have any evidence of exfiltration via a remote server, that could mean that the emails were actually removed via, via a thumb drive, AKA an internal leaker. So it's quite possible, but, the, the, the problem is I don't – where I don't agree with Ray and Bill Binney is that they think they've demonstrated conclusively that it was taken via a leaker and a thumb drive. But I just think there's so many other possibilities. What if the data they're looking at was transferred via a thumb drive after it was remotely hacked? You know, I just – so that's why I just can't endorse – well, they there. say it's possible physically because of the, you know, the, the internet speeds and the download speeds. I, I, I got that and maybe they're right, but I just, I don't know enough about c- computers to say that I can trust that with 100% certainty. And look, people even inside their group, uh, VIPs, Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, dissented from them. So even within their own group, there's some debate. And I'm not saying they're wrong. I just, I, I can't, um, and I think what they did was important. But I just don't have the, you know, it would be um, unfair for me to sort of just uh, endorse their findings because it aligns with my own personal belief, you know, without having the technical capacity to judge whether or not it's based on, you know, completely sound forensics. I just don't know. But I think it's certainly quite possible. Also, do you think Assange would be in Belmarsh right now? If this hadn't happened, if there was, you know, it, uh, great question. Great question. Well, certainly he's been on the U S target list for a long time, but the animus, he, the animus toward him really intensified with this whole thing. Yes. And yes, I mean, <clears throat> death rich is a real story. It's never been solved, you, you know, and nobody wants to talk about it because it's political or it's career suicide, I guess, but there's a lot there. And people should keep looking at it. Cy Hirsch, Ed Butowski, Ellen Ratner. I mean, these things, this is a convoluted story. I mean, I'm, you know, I know you guys won't talk about it because it's, 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 no, 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 listen, I don't see what there is to say when it comes to Seth Rich. I I certainly wouldn't dismiss it because if you don't believe that it's a hack, or at least if there's so much evidence doubting the allegation that it's a hack, then it could be anybody. Everyone wanted to blame the Russians. Yeah, FBI, sure. Yeah. You know, yeah, everyone. Yeah. But, that, but that doesn't mean it's Seth But it doesn't mean it's Seth Rich. And look, when it comes to Seth Rich, there's a lot of hearsay. That's what there is. And I maybe, know. The, maybe the hearsay is correct, but it's just hearsay. And Assange, and, though, did say that in that interview. I, I know you think but that was still that, to say that. That was still innuendo. That was still him. And then he walked it back. Look, you he know, was afraid. Well, I got that. But, you know, I'm not going to um, try to get inside his head. The point is. I can only go based on what are verifiable or at least highly plausible facts uh, or claims. And, um, and uh, so that's why I don't see the point in speculating much about Seth Rich unless we have some evidence. And so far, I haven't seen it. And maybe we'll get something. You know, who knows? People who know more. Yeah, sure. And they deserve the right to 
you know, speak out and, and talk about like whatever they want. But I, based on my own evidentiary standards, I have to go with what I can verify and with what, you know, with what I'm 100% confident in. And I'm not going to engage with hearsay. I'm just not going to do that. I, I understand. But it, it okay. seems fishy to the regular person looking. I got it. I got it. I got <laughs> Thank it. You. But yeah, I got it. Thank you. Okay. Fareed. <clears throat> And Fareed, if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right that you have to press to unmute yourself. All right. And we'll move on to the next caller. But Fareed, if you figure out the microphone thing, you can come back in line and we'll we'll bump you up. Okay. Shelly. Hi, Aaron. Hi, Hans. Um, hi. Aaron, I know that you really don't like to engage in speculation, but I just I kind of just want your opinion on kind of – I see sort of like – the way things were supposed to go before 2016 and Donald Trump won the election was that everyone kind of expected Hillary Clinton to become president. I know she's had kind of like a particular like animus towards like Putin and Russia for a long time. And I kind of feel like all of the movement in 2014 around Ukraine and just sort of how central Ukraine is to the, to kind of all the things that have happened since then. I feel like one of the reasons why this whole Russiagate thing has been so incredibly sloppy is because they were expecting Hillary Clinton to win and they had a different plan for how they were going to attack Russia. And then they kind of had to scramble and figure out another one. To fight I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. Nobody thought Trump was going to win. You have uh, you know, this character like Rodney Jaffe, who Hans spoke about before, the guy who, who came up with the fake data about the Trump Alpha Bank connection. He was talking about becoming Hillary's cybersecurity czar. That's what he was angling for. All these people working in the State Department, working in the FBI, they were under the assumption that Hillary Clinton was coming in. And so if you want to advance, if you want to be appointed to a top job, if you're John Brennan, who reportedly wanted to become defense secretary, you have all the more incentive to go along with the narrative that the Hillary Clinton campaign is putting out, and that is already very deeply entrenched inside the national security state, which is that, you know, Russia is our enemy, and this guy who's coming in out of nowhere, not from the Republican establishment, basically freestyling as his campaign and winning is a major problem. So all these people would have an incentive to go along with the narrative, and yeah, I totally think they went along with it on the assumption that Clinton would win, and that they would be handsomely rewarded for their services, but it didn't work out that way. And yes, I think absolutely the fact that Russia uh, basically, instead of rolling over when the U.S. backed the Ukraine coup in 2014, it took Crimea and it backed rebels in the east in a war against the coup government. That drew the deep animus of the neocon establishment inside Washington. And add to that also Syria, where the U.S. plan for regime change was going pretty well until 2015 when Russia intervened. And it was Russian intervention that turned the tide and essentially forced the U.S.-backed side, which was sectarian death squads, to lose. I don't think if Russia, if Russia hadn't intervened on Syria's side, I don't think that Syria would have won. I think the dirty war backed by the U.S. would have been successful. And I think that was good for Syria because I don't think Syria, most Syrians want to live under al-Qaeda or ISIS. But it was bad for the neocons in Washington. And I'm sorry to keep using that word because it's a bit... I don't know. Maybe it's overused, and it's it's not just neocons. It's also neoliberals. But they were really upset that Russia foiled their plans in Syria. So that I think that definitely contributed to this climate of animus toward 
Russia, and that de- all that definitely fueled this Russia Gate mess that we're still in. Yeah, and I was just kind of curious if you think that um, just sort of them having to backpedal and figure out another plan sort of kind of explains how so much about Russiagate just really does seem sloppy. Everything seems put together on the back end. You know, you have all the leaks against Trump, like the Russian bounties uh-huh. and all that stuff. Like everything seems really desperate as far as like foreign policy and advancing sort of the hegemonic imperial plan. It just seems like it's extra chaotic. And they, it's, it seems like whoever in the deep state, whoever it is that is trying to advance, you know, imperial hegemony is really on the back foot and has no idea what to do. And that's the reason why there are so many questions and it's so blatantly obvious for people. Yes. Well, look, you know, if you've, if you've ever lied to someone before or, you know, carried out actions based on a lie, it's difficult. You know, you're, you're in a weak position and that's what Russiagate was. It's based on a scam that the president of the U S is a Russian agent who conspired in a sprawling plot involving P-tapes and Russian hackers meeting Michael Cohen in Prague. It's all a lie. So when that's the, your starting point, you're in a really weak position. So no wonder it got sloppy. No wonder, no wonder there were so many embarrassing retractions constantly because the people behind it were lying and they were misleading the public and the media to the extent the media was duped or just a willing participant. Yeah, I agree. Um, thanks so much, Aaron. I still think the walls are closing in and the shoe's <laughs> going to drop. <laughs> Fair enough. Thanks, Joey. Okay, you too. All right. Andrew. Hello. Can you all hear me? Yes. yes. Awesome. Uh, so as someone who grew up in the 21st century and for whom 2016 was actually the first presidential election in which I could legally vote, it's been fascinating to see how much happened behind the scenes before and after this election uh, all over the place, both within the government and outside. Um, But I have two questions, if there's enough time. Uh, First, I wanted to, uh, Aaron, to clarify, since he refers to, quote, alleged hacking of the server, I'm wondering, has there been... uh, sufficient publicly released information to conclusively show that the server was hacked? I think based on what you'd said earlier, the answer to that is no, but there's also no reason to believe that it, there's not evidence to believe that it wasn't. And then my second question is regarding um, Alexandra Chalupa, who was in 2016 a high-ranking DNC member, and I'm not 100% sure what her role in all of this was, and so I'm curious if you could clarify as much as possible okay, got it. what her part was got it. in connection so, to all of this. The reason I say alleged hack of the DNC is because it's alleged, and it hasn't been substantiated, and no, I don't think there's been sufficient public evidence to show that it was hacked at all, and if anything, I think the public evidence shows the hacking allegation to be false and the product of a scam like like everything else in Russiagate was. But that's the point. I just We have not seen the underlying evidence. So maybe the evidence is there. It should be released. That's been my main uh, talking point all along is that the evidence should be released so the public can judge for ourselves and not have to rely on the word of intelligence officials and Clinton campaign uh, agents uh, that, that it was hacked. 
Um, but uh, that still is the allegation, so that's why I use the word alleged. But no, I don't think it's been substantiated at all. And when it comes to Chalupa, and maybe Hans has something to say about this, she worked with the Ukrainian embassy to leak damaging information about Paul Manafort and the Trump campaign in 2016. And she had been a DNC operative of, of some kind. So that was actual collusion, actual interference, but it's the kind that the media supports, so it doesn't really get talked about. But yeah, she was involved very early on in the Ukrainian aspect of interfering in the 2016 campaign, which which Hans spoke about a bit earlier. Okay, thank, thank you for both of those. Uh, really appreciate it, and I won't take up much more. Thanks, Andrew. Okay. And Hans, if, if there's anything you want to add, feel free to jump in. Okay, Steve, you're up. Hey, can you guys hear me? Yep. Perfect. Hey, you know, what I think so interesting is is we, we all know the media was part of the, the part of the conspiracy, but every day the journalists in the United States, whenever they see Obama, and Obama only comes out for elections nowadays, and Biden's sometimes takes questions or they can throw questions at him, they they the media the US media never asks Obama or uh, Biden, what what was their what was what did they know about Russiagate and what did they do about this? And it was, in other words, did they know what was going on? They, they never asked them any questions. But I know the answer is because the media doesn't want to ask because they're part of the conspiracy. Yeah, and and Durham has already said that they're basically off limits in his investigation. He's not going after them. Um, but look, it's you know it's possible that they had a limited role, that this really was a Clinton operation. I don't know. We do know, which I mentioned before, Obama was briefed even before the Trump-Russia investigation began that Hillary, that there was word in the U.S. intelligence community that Hillary had cooked up a plot to frame Trump for having ties to Russia. And Obama was personally briefed on that. I think that was July 28th, around then, um, by John Brennan. And so Obama certainly was aware of something. And... It's a great question. He should be asked about it. But you know what? Who should be even asked even more and who should be brought before a grand jury and should have been brought before the House Intelligence Committee is Hillary Clinton. I think Republicans made a huge error. Why didn't they interview Hillary Clinton back when they controlled the House Intelligence Committee? They interviewed more than 50 people and Hillary Clinton was missing from that list. And I don't I've tried to find an answer for that, but no one can give me a good explanation. And I think it speaks to how powerful the Clintons are inside Washington and even Republicans are afraid to really go there, which speaks to a real problem that, you know, if uh, after so much fraud has been caught in the Russiagate affair, that one of the key figures behind it, a very powerful person can't be brought for questioning. It's uh, that's not a good sign. Right. But wouldn't it be hilarious if, I'll make it quick. Imagine, uh, you know, they're asking Joe Biden about his favorite ice cream uh, flavor, and then they th- then they throw in, and what'd you know about Russiagate? <laughs> they ought to do that. They ought to do that. I, I hope so. Thank, thank, thank you so much. I appreciate it, man. Thank you, Steve. Has, did you want to weigh in on the... Yeah, there's also, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, July 28th, Obama found out about this plot. Uh, well, it was intercepted communication, so it may or may not have been true, but... Um, uh, it was also passed to the FBI and uh, before this whole Sussman thing kicked off. So, you know, at that point, as soon as the FBI got that information, they should have obviously 
press the reset button and said, hey, let, let's, let's see, what, what have we got here? All this info coming in. Is that, is that got to do with this? You know, is, is this Hillary who's sending all this info in here? And, of course, they didn't do that. So th those people need to be asked about that too. And Hans, do you have any um, insight into why Hillary Clinton was never brought in? No, I, I completely share your insight, which is the, the Clintons are in, in many ways, you know, untouchable. Look at what Trump did. Three days after he won the election, he went on uh, 60 Minutes and said, no, the Clintons, they're good people. We're not going to touch them. You know, and he kind of set the tone and that was it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And of course, Trump as president could. And this is something that was, you know, a major uh point of disappointment for all of us all of us who followed Russiagate, the fact that Trump could have declassified all of these documents that we know exist, including, by the way, a very interesting House report that speaks to the issue we've been talking about a lot, which is the basis for the Russian hacking allegation. The House Intelligence Committee, when it was controlled by Republicans under Devin Nunes, uh, did a report that looked at the basis for the intelligence community accusing Russia of hacking the DNC. And we haven't seen that report, but we know it exists, and we, we've seen uh, some aspects of it in a different House intelligence report that's been released but was heavily redacted that, re that even has that, – that if you read the language, it shows that the House Intelligence Committee under Devin Nunes raised questions about the claims that Russia hacked the DNC. They talk about there being heavy caveats. They talk about there being uh, you know missing – evidentiary elements there there's hints of this and unfortunately the parts that we've seen in the public are redacted but there's a report the whole report they did on this topic that trump was going to release at the end of his administration but we know this from reporting the washington post he was blocked and you know people who worked under him like cash patel who was a key staffer on the house intelligence committee and then went on to work for trump in a number of senior positions wanted to release this report that he had helped produce, but it got blocked because people like Gina Haspel were saying that this would jeopardize national security. So Trump could have released all these important documents, but he didn't. And that's a, you have to wonder why. Was he worried about losing support during the impeachment? Was he worried about retribution against him for embarrassing the intelligence community? I don't know, but it's for him, that was a majorly lost opportunity and possibly a uh, devastating one, because that might have been the only chance we might ever have to get that vital information released. Yeah, pardoning Assange as well. I, I think the reason is the one you you alluded to. Um, you know, just just being uh, he was told not to do that, and bad things would happen if he did that. Yeah. Okay, Steve. Thanks for the call, Bill. And Bill, if you're there. You've done this before, so you know how to unmute yourself. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I thought I hit the button. My bad. There you go. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if uh, Aaron and Hans, if you paid attention to the French recent French election, a lot of it was uh, discussing the Russian loan to Le Pen. A lot of it was um, uh, discussing there was an EU. Um, well, for several years, the European Union has been investigating Le Pen. Um, for uh, misuse of public funds uh, seem to have a big impact on the French election. So I'd like to kind of widen this. There's a lot of things, of course, I always disagree with you, Aaron, on a lot of things. Um, one of the things, I don't want to get into that, though, because um, 
you're much more informed about it than I am. And I probably can't back up everything. I do appreciate you not biting on the Seth Rich stuff. Um, and when you're talking to somebody from the Epoch News, especially. Um, but, um, but I'm wondering if we could widen this a little bit. And I can just ask you, how do we handle in an election? I mean, one of the bad, most the problems with the United States elections is they last so goddamn long. Um, but when you have an election and you have these investigations that crop up, how are you supposed to handle it? I mean, you know, in the case of Obama, uh, he had a transparency moment. He could have um, announced or or even leaked some of the information sooner about what was happening and what the FBI was doing. Um, he sent a letter to McConnell. McConnell said would not agree with it because he wanted to, he wanted to have the bipartisan. Uh, he wanted a way to to show that it wasn't just him making the decision and trying to interfere with the election by reporting on this stuff. Um, I I think I kind of agree that um, that in these cases, what you've got is you've got a lot of innuendos, you, it's the very nature of investigations, um, and you don't have enough time to clear them. I mean, some of these things take years to clear, um, to get to, to the truth. But you have an election that's coming up on in October. And so, you know, we need to maybe have neutral judicial review. We need transparency. Um, the FBI should be forced to report to a um, to neutral court if it's investigating someone that's in taking part in the presidential election. Um, some of these things need to be need to be rationalized a little bit. And, you know, I wish we could just go back to the time. You know, I don't know how he did it, but, you know, um, uh, how how it turned out that we were able to stop the, the Red Scare in the 50s and Edward R. Murrow and people that were serving your your role. They were able to um, not they didn't have to rely on alternative media media. They were on CBS. And I wish we had people like you on CBS and, and CNN. And I, and that's one of the reasons why we're screwed up, why we're in such a bad mess. Um, but if you were on CBS, I, I don't think you would have to, I think you would be able to, to approach it in a different way. Um, because the truth does, it, in order to, to persuade people and to get people to see the truth, um, it's really hard when they are coming from it from their own perspective and they just can't listen. Right. And so, yeah. so I'm just looking for, I'm honestly, you know, trying to, you know, I'm, I worry for my country. I'm, I'm upset about the way things are going. There's going to be another election. There's going to be more of these conspiracy theories. And a lot of them, a lot of them, there may be even some truth with some of them, but the problem is we don't have a way to correct it. Yes. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's what we're stuck, that's what we're stuck on. You could you could, you know, go to on Fox News or you could go report on Epoch News or whatever, but it's not it, it cannot correct it unless it's some more mainstream. You know what I mean? Well, although I will say that the the power of the mainstream is declining. I mean, we saw CNN Plus cratered after 3 weeks because people I think realize they're being lied to and they're sick of like the standard partisan hackery. So but yes, I agree. There is a complete um, lockdown on dissenting opinions when it comes to these 
key issues like Russiagate or the Ukraine proxy war and many others. And it makes it difficult. You know, it is. It's tough. Um, just on the point you made about Obama and before the 2016 election. Yes, it's true. Obama didn't say that, you know, uh, he thought Trump was colluding with Russia, but other people did. The Clinton campaign did get that into the media. And Harry Reid, the Senate Majority Leader, after he was briefed by John Brennan, uh, sent letters to Jim Comey saying, you need to go public with this. And, and uh, you know, you're like, we've, you've, you've damning information about Trump and Russia. So Democrats tried and they tried to plant stories, but they're just, the problem is there was nothing there. And that's what I think gets lost sometimes in speaking about the Russia investigation. Every conversation about the Russia investigation has to start with the premise that it was based on fraud. There was no legitimate reason to open up this sprawling counterintelligence investigation of a presidential campaign for conspiring with Russia. If they had done the same thing to Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders, it would have been insane. Or in fact, with any other Republican candidate, it would have been insane and nobody would have tolerated it. But because it was Trump who was, you know, uh, like, yeah, well, partially you know, it's because because Trump was such a norm breaker as far I as get what it. it yeah, I get it. I get why it was more why it was easier to to pull off and easier to digest. But it doesn't make it any less illegitimate. That's all I'm saying. The, the, the if you look if you go back and read the document the FBI used to open up the Trump Russia investigation, the opening the electronic communication of July 31st, 2016. What the basis for the entire thing, the entire Trump Russia investigation, it's it literally says that they're doing this based on a tip they got from an Australian diplomat who spoke to a Trump campaign volunteer who spoke to someone else who's not even Russian, who gave a suggestion of a suggestion of some kind of unspecified Russian help. Nothing about the stolen emails at the heart of Russiagate, nothing about the Trump campaign conspiring in a you know right. hack well, that's and why I'm button. saying we have that's that's why I'm saying we have to rationalize that process. It just can't be that simple. It's no, got to it have can't. some sort of review. Yeah, I, I agree. Or else it will be used in the future against you know the people I support, like or at least like, sure. the people I. I, oh, I yeah, support. I'm really worried. I'm really worried about that. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. In the next presidential uh-huh. election, I don't know. It really worries me. You know. Yeah. Bill, okay. thanks a lot thanks. for the call. Appreciate and, it. Yeah. It's always a pleasure to not to not argue with you. So so thank you for the. <laughs> There you go. Thanks. All right. Take care. Okay, Katie. And we are going to wrap in nine minutes. So let's try to get through as many calls as we can. Go ahead, Katie. Hi, thanks. Um, I wanted to say hi, Hans. Thanks for all your great work on this. I really appreciate it. Um, I have a quick question about this reporting that's come out um, last night and today about Sussman having a, um, and Pocus Coy having a, uh, outside contractor office inside their office with the FBI. Um, that's just crazy to me. And um, I've heard some other reporting on the fringes of contractors with the CIA. What's your take on all that? Hans, I'd love to get your view on this too. As an attorney, this claim from Matt Gates that Perkins Coy had an FBI post inside its office, a working an FBI working desk, inside its office. Is that significant or is that something normal at these big law firms? Um, as an attorney, we don't know enough. That's, that's the short answer. I mean, on the surface, uh, you know, it, it sounds terrible, but I've heard people come up with possible explanations. So 
it's just one of those things we just have to 48 hour rule and all the rest of it. No, probably more than 48 hours. We're just going to have to wait and see um, what comes out on that. What I would say is, uh, is a bit suspicious for sure is why did it, if it's, if it's something totally innocent, you know, why are we only finding out about that now? Um, couple that with uh, Sussman's access. That's that, that kind of goes hand in hand with that um, revelation. Um, when he went to see um, Baker at the FBI, Baker asked him, oh, you know, do I need to get you a visitor pass or you know, I need to get you into the building or whatever? And Sussman goes, no, I have a badge. So, uh, yeah, the short answer is I don't think we know enough to know what's going on there. All right. Katie, thank you for the call. Roy, you're up. Hey, guys, can you hear me? Yes. Hey, great work. Um, I wanted to ask about who I see is like the underreported villain in this whole thing. And that's, that's Rod Rosenstein. I, I just want to get your thoughts on, um, I'm really just so confused how, how he could have appointed this Mueller council with such a narrow focus to not look into anything that Durham's looking into the origins, mistakes by the FBI, anything like that. It was just only focused to get Trump with just what seemed to be a loaded group of just Democrat partisans um, on the team. And uh, it seemed like, and, and wasn't there a report in the end that they, they didn't hand in their phones or they wiped them clean? It just seems like he, like how could he possibly have appointed that council in the way that he did and allowed them to just, look in only on the only under certain rocks when he had to know like wow we're finding out new stuff and i know the ig did his report if you guys could just talk about like how you view his legacy and his history and and why is he not just looked at as just an absolute fool for the way he conducted this whole thing he was in charge uh, well, my view is that he was just a, a completely weak man, just a very, very weak person. Um, should have never been in the position he was in. Obviously, he wasn't supposed to be because it was supposed to be Sessions. But Sessions was just as weak because he recused. So uh, I, th- I think we can debate, you know, about Rod Rosenstein all over, you know, back and forth. But I think at the end of the day, it comes down to him just being weak. He He just followed whatever he thought would be the path of least resistance. So when there was a sort of uh, a majority for having a special counsel because some Republicans came on board and, you know, said, you know, some, someone ought to look into it, you know, and then why Mueller? I think because he Mueller looks like someone that you could trust, especially back then and so on. So again, weak path of least resistance, that sort of stuff on the, um, uh, on the, the sessions recusal, one interesting little point here that, um, little tidbit I, I found today in those documents that we were talking about. Um, the FBI had some kind of embargo internally uh, on the um, the reasons they gave for Sessions to recuse. It's they call it uh, in the document. It's called it's called red line deliberative process. Don't talk about it. So um, th- that's still th- there's something there that that's going to be very interesting to find out whatever that is. Obviously, a bunch of lies to make Sessions recuse, but the fact that they specifically flagged it up for, you know, as a red line, don't talk about it, that that kind of certainly piqued my interest. Thanks. Okay, Roy, thanks for the call. And we're going to try to get to as many as we can in the time we have left. Jack. 
Uh, hi, hi, Aaron. Hi, Hans. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, hi there. Uh, so I just have like uh, two quick points. Firstly, um, the Australian diplomat um, who you mentioned was a former um, foreign relations minister, Alexander Downer, under the Howard the Howard government. So they were in power around like the late nineties and early two thousands. He has his own kind of um, diplomatic kind of espionage scandal that he's been potentially implicated in where the Australian government was caught spying on um, the um, East Timor government to try and advantage Australian mining companies for like resources that were located like in between Australia and East Timor. Um, and there's uh, currently um, someone, two people being prosecuted in, in a secret trial um, in Canberra. Uh, the first person is this person known as Witness K who actually leaked the documentation. And the second person is, his lawyer. So I'd encourage anyone who might be a bit more interested in, um, out, like essentially, you know, Alexander Downer, the Australian diplomat who might have played a key role in all this, actually has a really shady past. So I'd encourage you to look into that. Um, the second thing is that just echoing something that a previous caller said, it would be so great if there was one kind of definitive resource um, on all of this Russiagate stuff that could map out the timelines. And my suggestion would, I, I think it would be really interesting if, you know, you could potentially work with, um, Glenn Greenwald and maybe Matt Taibbi and some of the other really key journalists who've been involved in kind of mm-hmm. uncovering a lot of what's gone on to develop something, um, that could be used, um, as a resource. Cause I mean, I find it really hard to kind of like, you know, explain to people what's gone out, gone on without, without them thinking that I'm completely insane. I'd really appreciate something like that. Well, I'm working on a book. That's what I can contribute. And it just sort of puts together all the work I've done for the last many years on this. And hopefully there'll be, there'll be more because there was so much, you know, uh, writing on the topic. So many books, a few of them were, were decent, but so many of the books that came out during the Russiagate era when it was really a big thing were just such scams. It was all based, it was all there to perpetuate the fraud. So now it's time for a corrective. So I'm working on a book as fast as I can, and that will be out. Um, I don't possibly at the end of this year, but if not this year, then next year. And that's what I can do. But, yeah, I agree. We we need as many resources as we can. Thanks, Aaron. And, Hans, anything you want to add to that? Uh, yeah, I'm working on a book as well. I'm not sure I'll beat you or vice versa or whatever, but uh, I also thought it would be a good idea to – kind of um, tell the whole story, not just in bits and pieces, but like, you know, as a whole, uh, from start to finish, from, you know, early 2016 all the way to Mueller or maybe beyond. Nice. I, I, I think, th- like, a book would be great. I think I think it's great that you guys are making books. I think something that could also be really worthwhile would be, you know, some kind of um, documentary as well. But I know that, that that's a whole other undertaking, require other expertise and resources. But Yeah, I... I looked into that. I was, yeah, that's, um, that, I mean, one will happen one day, but I, I just don't know when, cause it takes a while to get these things going. And, uh, all, you know, the problem is those of us in the Russiagate debunking community, we're a very small, relatively small group. And there's only, there's just only so much you can do with the time and resources yeah. that you have, but I agree. All of this would be much needed. Okay. And we'll take a final caller from travis thank you for the call jack all right travis if you're speaking i can't hear you which might be because you're on bluetooth 
Are you there? Unfortunately, Travis, I, like I can see that you're talking, but I can't hear anything you're saying. So we're going to go to the next caller. And if you want to jump out and try to come back in, we'll see if we have time to get to you. But Amanda, go ahead. And Amanda, if you're there, there's a microphone button in the bottom right. Sorry, sorry, I was on the chat. I was on the chat screen. Thank no you. Worries. Good evening. Good evening. Um, um, I, it's something that Hans said really made me think. You know, a a completely expansive investigation on a very flimsily based thing when there's so many other things that actually were being done that were criminal. And I was just thinking, Whitewater. I mean, the Clintons got investigated for how long? over that for nothing, basically for all the things that were being done, you know, and Clintons are getting back at the Republicans, if anything. I mean, that's just my thought. I appreciate that you bring this to the people. I really do. Thanks. You Thanks. guys. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you. Okay. And, and, and if you're there, there's a microphone, but there you go. Oh, thank you. Gosh, Aaron, I so admire you. Um, I, um, you know, I was just, uh, amazed by, you know, you, Matt Taibbi, Glenn Greenwald, you all have followed, uh, these stories. You, you, I think, are the champion. Um, but I was so disappointed when, uh, Sussman was acquitted. And I'm just wondering how that, that acquittal is going to impact the stories that follow, because I saw Matt Taibbi, you know, really um, going out on a limb more than he has to say, you know, to describe how horrible this hoax upon the American people and the undermining of democracy that it is. Can you comment on that? Yeah, of course it's horrible. I mean, Russiagate is the legitimization of unelected national security state bureaucrats to interfere in the democratic process. And look, I'm not a Trump supporter by any means. I think that, I mean, even putting aside Trump, the people he appointed, I think I, I'm really not a fan of. I think they're among the most dangerous people on the planet. I'm thinking of Mike Pompeo and John Bolton, especially. But the idea that the national security state can interfere with the democratic process is something everybody should oppose, no matter what side of side of, uh, of the spectrum you're on, you know? And even if your only concern was partisan utility, well, think about what might happen to your favorite candidate in 10 years if you legitimate this playbook where it's okay for a political opponent to invent completely insane allegations and then use that as the basis to have you not only investigated throughout the course of your presidency, but have your presidency severely impacted and having foreign policy decisions set not by the elected president, but by unelected national security state officials. So, yeah, it's a complete subversion of democracy. And there's a, whole, there's a whole other aspect of this, too, in which this erodes democracy. And this is what I write about in my book, which is that, you know, if you look honestly at Trump and why he won, I think that was a reflection of his ability to tap into the discontent there was with the neoliberal economic system. And he was able to claim he was going to drain the swamp. And I don't think he was ever sincere in that claim. But look, at least he was saying it. And at least he was speaking to very real pain from, you know, that was out there as a result of 
decades of neoliberal decay and corporate greed. And what Russiagate is, is basically saying that all that discontent out there, it's not legitimate that if you vote for the wrong person, mm-hmm. we're not going to let that person govern. And we're going to instead try to focus all of your attention on Russian bots and, you know, uh, Russian interference as the source of all of our problems. That's another way in which democracy is eroded because it's saying to people that your concerns are not valid. It's our concerns in the, in the national security state bureaucracy. That's what matters. And that's why we're going to talk endlessly about, you know, if whether or not someone in the Trump camp spoke to someone with a Russian passport or who knows someone who knows someone who has a Russian passport. And we're going to portray Robert Mueller as the superhero who's going to answer all of our uh, prayers instead of focusing on real issues that impact people's lives. That's another major erosion of democracy. And then you talk about, I mean, look, (laughs) I can go on this topic forever. Then you talk about all the ways in which, you know, cracking down on so-called Russian interference and Russian disinformation has been used to actually, you know, promote authoritarianism, promote censorship. Look at what happened to the Hunter Biden laptop story before the 2020 election. Some retired intelligence officials came out and said, oh, yeah, this this is probably Russia. So on that basis, discussion of a very important story, the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop, however you feel about them, was censored. You know, so all this in the name of protecting democracy from this mythical Russian interference is really an assault on democracy. And that's a big reason why, among many, that I'm so concerned about it and why I spent so much time trying to offer a different perspective. So so my question was, do you think, though, that the acquittal of Michael Sussman is going to interfere with continued stories about, about you know, hopefully as more revelations come out? Well, it, it depends who you're talking about. Certainly... The corporate media that went along with Russiagate, they're, they're never going to report the truth anyway, yeah. unless there's something just so, you know, like, like it, it, it would be impossible for them to ignore, for, which they've done a great job at. For example, they've ignored completely the CrowdStrike admissions that they had no evidence <laughs> of Russian hacking. So I'm not sure what it would take for them to get to report the truth. But anyway, but yeah, look, certainly people who have a stake in pretending that Russiagate is credible are going to use this as a reason not to pay attention. But look, you know, those of us who care about the facts will always be reporting on this. But uh, yeah, certainly anyone who wants to keep their eyes closed will have another reason to pretend as if there's there's nothing to see here as a result of this verdict. Thank you. All right. Because we have one person left in the queue, we will take it. Andrew, go ahead and you will be our last caller. Hi, Aaron. Uh, just a quick question for you. Have you ever encountered the work of Ryan Dawson from Anti-Neocon Report? Uh, no. All right. Well, these people talking about making a timeline, um, he made an Epstein crime map. And for 13 years, I think, he was working on Epstein and the Epstein case as just a private citizen and ended up making one of the best maps of you know, it's kind of one of those schizo things where you've got like pictures and lines and everything, but it connects the relevant players. So uh, he's highly controversial. He actually is the most banned person on the Internet. He's been banned from MySpace and AOL years ago. So 
he's not an Alex Jones, but he gets treated that way because of the things he touches. Um, I just think if you haven't seen his work, he's talked about uh, Joe Biden in Ukraine. And as you said, this all ties back to Russiagate eventually. And he's done some work on Russiagate. I think uh, if you find it worth uh, withstanding the heat that you get for even acknowledging this person's existence, it might be worth uh, talking to him or looking into his work on it if you're interested at all. Okay. Well, thanks for, thanks for the recommendation. Appreciate it. Thanks for your time. All right. We're going to wrap. Hans, anything you want to leave us with as we wrap? No, I, I think we've covered it all in, in, in great detail. Uh, anyway, you know, thanks for having me. It was, it was good fun. It was great fun. Thanks. Hans, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm going to put your Twitter handle in the show notes of this episode, along with some article links for people to click on if they want to read more about the topics we've discussed about tonight. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. This was great. It's great to see so many people come out. And thank you for spending some time with us and everybody who asked questions. We really appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. Have a great rest of your day. Bye, everybody.